Well, I'll invite you to take your copy of God's Word, and let's open it up to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 1. I appreciate every act of worship this morning. I stopped and thought about uh, Chad and Mallory and Scott and Dana and the prayers that were offered and the songs that we sang. I think it's thoroughly prepared our hearts uh, to hear the Word this morning. And of course, this is the height and this is the most important part about any worship service is to hear what God has to say to us. Uh, We've been speaking to the Lord since we've been in here. Now it's time for God to speak to us. Right? Matthew chapter 1, the title of the sermon is God with us. I will spare you the genealogy today. But let me remind you that that is a sermon within itself. And one day I will preach that genealogy to you. But what a blessing it is to read the culmination in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Isn't it a joy to look down and see his name on the page? The fulfillment of the first 14 generations that led to David, the king of Israel, and then 14 generations that led to the destruction of Jerusalem and captivity, And then from the deportation all the way down 14 generations to the birth of Christ. Uh, It is, the genealogy is the introduction of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So don't just pass it off too quickly. There's a lot of history in the genealogy. But let's pick up our reading in verse 18 for this morning. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. If you want to, let's stand, stretch. Read Matthew's birth narrative. The Bible says in Matthew 1 verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place. To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. To God be the glory. You may be seated. Matthew's birth narrative is quite a bit different than Luke's. Matthew, his account, is from the experience and perspective 
of Joseph. When Luke writes, he writes his account from the perspective and from the experience of Mary. Surely you've noticed this as you've you've read this. And as you consider those two individuals, Joseph and Mary, we have to stand back and we have to commend the model of submissive faith and obedient faith that we see in the lives of these two people. Would you not agree? Can you imagine being Joseph on this day with all that it's entailed? Now, again, think about it. When it says the birth of Jesus happened in this way, that word is origin. This is more than just uh, giving you a birth announcement. This is giving you the info of all the circumstances, events, the people, the places, the surroundings that would have been the case when Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. So it means a whole lot more than just a birth announcement. But let's consider the lives of Joseph and Mary. There's no question that to look at their submissive, obedient faith is an awesome thing. But I want to remind you that you make a crucial mistake. If you make a human model of faith the crucial, most important part of this text. Because this text is not first about a human model of faith. It is about the God of all eternity entering into human history. That is the, that's the meaning of the text of Scripture. I cannot overestimate or exaggerate this morning the importance of our God entering into human history. And neither should you. You can't overestimate. You can't exaggerate that point too much. This is the most important event in all of human history. When God would enter our history the way He has on the dawning of the day when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We will certainly look at the responses of Joseph and Mary, and we should learn from them. But I want to remind you that you should see the incarnation of the Son of God this morning as the unveiling of the appearance of God in human history like no other time before or since until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how important it is for you to see this. This morning, here's what I want to do with this text. I want to divide it uh, into three parts, and I want to give you three incredible truths found straight from the text in Matthew 1, 18-25. And then I want to give you one response. Three truths, one response. And when it comes to that response, my prayer would be that you would have the same kind of sudden, stunning, obedient, submissive faith like Joseph had. Amen? Are you all ready to do that? Now, David got done last week at 11.25. I'm proud of him. I told him that. He usually doesn't preach that short. But I'm not giving you that same promise, okay? Here we go. Here's the first thing. We need to all marvel at the supernatural miracle of his birth. Is that not what this text is about? When we think of God with us, God is calling us to marvel. And again, the best translation is the origin of Jesus, the Messiah, happened like this. And Matthew's going to do more, again, than to give you a birth announcement. He's going to speak of the circumstances surrounding the situation when God does the supernatural. So there's so much for us to learn here. Just to speak again of the genealogy, Matthew is wanting to connect 
for the Jewish people the fact that his origin is connected to the seed of David and even further back to the seed of Abraham. If you had time to read that, you would see it. So he's getting them to understand that this is the king in succession with David, but this is the king of kings. And it even goes back to 2 Samuel 7, as well as Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, when it connects with Abraham. We often start reading verse 18, and we don't pause long enough to look at the crisis that is in front of you immediately. As God is doing the supernatural, we're confronted in this verse with a crisis. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child. Folks, that's a crisis. That's a crisis of magnanimous proportion for Joseph in his life. So God is doing the supernatural, but please grasp the weight of what's going on in the text when we read this particular crisis. Now, a betrothal in that day... Uh, it's more like, or I guess the closest thing we could call a betrothal would be an engagement. But there's a huge difference between an engagement today and a betrothal then. When it says they were betrothed, there would have been two or three witnesses that stood there as they came together for a binding covenant between one another. So this was a lot different than our engagements today. When I was growing up, and Natalie and I, Natalie can probably remember this. I can remember several guys and gals who were engaged not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. Just about every time you bumped into them, hey, I'm engaged. Broke it off, not engaged anymore. Well, the fact is, the way you get rid of an engagement today is give the ring back, right? And by all means, make sure you didn't send out any wedding invitations because that's kind of embarrassing. But the fact is... This is different. You would have uh, witnesses to this binding covenant. And if you're going to get out of it, you had to have a right of divorce. To get out of a betrothal. Unlike an engagement when you could just give back a ring. Couldn't do that then. You, you had to get out of it with a right of divorce. So, Mary would have been seen... As a fornicator. But not only as a fornicator, but because of betrothal, she would have been an adulterer. Right? That's the exact meaning of what's going on in this passage of Scripture. So it was certainly the sin of fornication, but it would have also been considered adultery and marital infidelity. A little bit more history. Most girls were betrothed between 13 and 14. Could y'all imagine that happening in our day? Could you? Uh, we think 13, 14. Uh, I can't hardly think 25 and 6 nowadays uh, because of the way our society is versus 13 and 14. But the standard age was 13 to 14 for betrothal. And usually you would have them being brides for the girl by the age of 15. It's not the case anymore. I understand that. So here we have Joseph betrothed to Mary. And then we have this crisis. Before the betrothal was consummated, she was found to be with child. And what would happen at the conclusion of the betrothal period, the husband would go to the bride's home. You see, folks, we got this messed up, don't we? We had the bride coming down the aisle. Wrong! That's not the way it's going to be when Jesus comes back. And you do understand that marriage 
is a picture of an already existing reality. The love of Christ for his bride came first. And then God made marriage to complement that so that your lifelong pursuit of loving your husband and husbands loving your wife would mirror Christ's love for his church. So in the Bible times, the bridegroom would go to the home of the bride. She was still living with her parents and he would go and he would get her and he would take her back to his home and therein the marriage would be consummated. So just to help you know that, if any of you want to do that in your wedding, go to your bride's house, pick her up and bring her back to the church. I'm all in. Okay? I'll wait for you to get here. But Matthew uses this euphemism, before they came together, which is a euphemism for sexual relations. She was found to be with child. Her condition was apparent. Uh, Can you imagine Joseph's mindset? What is the assumption? The wife that is betrothed to me has been unfaithful. Joseph knows clearly that he is not the father. Matthew quickly tells us where the baby Jesus or where his conception came from. I mean, Matthew doesn't even allow the taint of sin to hit the text. Immediately, he's going to tell you what's going on. This is Holy Spirit-empowered virginal conception. That's what the text says. So, just imagine all the accusations, all the uh, finger-pointing. Of course, it's going to go on in the life of Christ. We know that from the Gospels. It's going to go on with Joseph and Mary. Now, think with me for a moment on the human plane You've got an unplanned pregnancy, folks. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that you can't get any more unplanned than virginal conception. You can't get any more unplanned than Holy Spirit-empowered virginal conception. But on the other level, check this out. You've got the God of the universe, the Holy Spirit, who hovered over the earth and created the world, hovering over the womb of Mary and giving virginal conception. So you got the human plane, but you got the God plane, right? When God is working and God is doing the supernatural. We see this link between the Spirit and the Son all the way through the Gospels. The Holy Spirit working in concert with the Son. And here he works in concert to begin with a Holy Spirit-empowered virginal conception. All Joseph knows at this point is that his betrothed wife is pregnant. And I think there's a great lesson for us in this text regarding the purity of Mary, the fact that God blesses purity. Uh, When you get to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 37, the writer Luke is going to go to great lengths to ensure the reader that Mary walked in purity before she was virginally conceived by virginal conception by the Holy Spirit of God. Is there something that can be said about her humility and her purity for young girls and boys in our world today. Is there something that can be said about it? I want to remind you that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1-8 through 8, is going to say to us, and this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You know what that means, don't you? You abstain from premarital sex. Period. You don't have to look this up, kids, in the Bible. You don't have to pray about this. The Bible says this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from premarital sex. I ought to have more amens than that. Amen? That's what the Bible says. And why does it say that? It goes on in that text to say, you got to refuse to cheat on your future spouse. 
And furthermore, you're robbing that spouse in the future who might marry that girl or that man because you've taken something for them that can never be given to that person at the marriage altar. Folks, this is a serious thing because if you read on down in the text, the Bible says that God is the avenger of such people. How much suffering are we going through today because we didn't honor God when it came to premarital sex? Young people, don't do it. Don't do it. You know why? Because God honors purity and He blesses humility and purity. Right? Now that wasn't a sermon, was it? But I was in the neighborhood, so I thought I would drop in, right? So here it is. Listen. This birth is supernatural. These are the circumstances surrounding that birth. We need to marvel at the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of God in bringing about Holy Spirit-empowered virginal conception. I believe in the virgin birth. Yes, from my radiator to my tailpipe. I wouldn't give you a half a hallelujah chance for heaven if you deny the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So, his birth was not like Buddha's. You ever heard that story? People say mystical belief, that Buddha came about because his mother had an, a white elephant enter into her body and thus she conceived. Now folks, that's garbage. This birth was different. His was not the, he was not the biological son of righteous Joseph. His birth was like no other. It was a full demonstration of the fact that our God does the supernatural and marvel of all marvels. Our God chose the vehicle of a virgin's womb to enter into this world. Mm, that's awesome, isn't it? You ought to marvel at that. That's number one. Number, here's the second truth. You need to listen as the Scriptures communicate the saving ministry of His birth. We've got the supernatural miracle, but why did He come? He came for a salvation ministry, right? That's why He came. Verses 19 through 21, I won't read it again, but we know that Joseph was a just man. He had to be agonizing over the situation. The Bible tells us about that. I mean, here's a man who tried to live his life in conformity to the law of God. He was a conscientious Jewish man who loved God and attempted to obey, obey the law of God. And so Joseph would find it morally inconsistent to marry Mary. Right? That would have been morally inconsistent. In our day, things are a whole lot different. But you've got to place yourself back in the first century. If you're a righteous person, you would not marry a person who was unfaithful to you because if you did, it indicted you as an adulterer. So here's a man that has so much compassion. He not only had this compassion, he lived in a way that pleased his father because if you read through here, you'll understand that uh, if you read the Old Testament, if you're an adulterer, you could be stoned to death. This was still going on at this particular time, howbeit it was really hard to get the Roman government to stone someone by Jewish request. A lot of times the Romans just did not get involved with stoning of Jewish people. However, Joseph could have pushed the envelope and probably had Mary put to death by stoning. He could also put her away in a court setting. And that is the meaning of put her to open public shame. He could have called together the Sanhedrin and had a court 
and ruled her guilty and sent her away and shamed her. But that's not what Joseph did. As a matter of fact, the Bible says he would just put her away privately, which would have been an annulment. He would do it secretly. And you know this had to be a painful decision. He's walking up rightly before God. He loves this woman. He loves the Lord God. But then, thank the Lord, our God begins to speak. Now, folks, I said, listen as the Scriptures. Listen as the Scriptures communicate the saving ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, do you know that God is speaking? God has spoken. He is speaking. He is speaking to us through His Word. And folks, I can't tell you how important it is for Joseph to hear God speaking to him. Giving him direct revelation at the time of which you have today fully given to you. Uh, I hope you heard Brother David's analogy on that and how clear it is that Jesus is the final word. There is no new revelation. We have all that we're going to ever get from our God until we see Him in glory right here in the Word of God. And so he's communicating it. And the angel of the Lord begins to speak to Joseph. God intervenes. And folks, he's going to do this multiple times. Verse, chapter 120, chapter 2, verse 13, verse 19, verse 22. God is going to speak to him. Think about all the pain that Joseph is going through. Just think about what he's thinking in his mind. He's thinking he's doing the right thing. And, and I would say, looking at the text and thinking about my life, I think Joseph was doing, although he's in a lot of pain, he does exactly the best thing he knows to do. He's lived right before his Lord. He's trying to be a compassionate man, but he's going to put her away privately. But then God begins to speak. You know, folks, we make our plans, but the Bible says God directs our steps. And he's made his plan the best he knows how, but God Almighty steps in and begins to speak. And at this point, Not only did Joseph live in a way that pleased his father, he also listened in a way. And I can't stress that enough, folks, of how we need to listen to what God has to say to us in his word. And the way in which the angel addresses Joseph is incredibly critical to the presentation to Jewish people. Because why? Matthew is an apologetic to Jewish people to understand that the king has come. And so the angel says, David uh, speaks to Joseph and reminds him of his lineage in David. Why? Because all of this is a fulfillment of everything that God had to say in the Old Testament. So, think about all the backstabbing, all the finger-pointing on the human level of him taking Mary to be his wife. He's a poor carpenter. Y'all remember that? He's probably 18 years of age. And the angel says, don't be afraid. And the reason for David, for Joseph not being afraid was why? The Holy Spirit of God has given virginal conception to Mary. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. And then he adds some more language. You will call his name and he will save his people from their sin. Herein you have the saving ministry of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, this is why he came to earth, that he would save his people from their sin. Now on the human plane, think about this for a moment. When God tells us to step up and obey him, what is one of the greatest impediments to doing that? Talk to me. It is fear, right? 
We fear, we have a lack of trust, and we fear. And that's exactly why the angel says it the way the angel says it. Do not fear. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your bride. You know, folks, it's so much safer to travel the road, uh, or should I say the most traveled road, isn't it? It's, It's so much easier to stay in our own little box and not risk anything. But I'm telling you, folks, this is a risk you've got to take, Joseph, right? And you don't need to be afraid. Now put your thinking cap on. He thinks Mary is pregnant because of unfaithfulness. He's got his heart ripped slam out of his chest, and the angel gives him this most unbelievable news. The child is not the result of fornication, but is the exclusive work of the Holy Spirit of God wrought in her womb through virginal conception. Now think about that. Uh, There's no guessing. Uh, There's no ultrasounds to determine the sex. The angel says, it's going to be a boy. And I'm even going to tell you what you're going to name him. You're going to name him Jesus. Why? Because his name means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. That name, folks, is critical. If he's not Yahweh God, then you're still in your sins, and we might as well pack her up and go to the house. There's no need to come to the church. His name will be called Yahweh. Yes, Joseph, you're going to be his adopted father, but you're going to give him the name Jesus. Please slow down to feel the weight of that phrase, he will save his people from their sins. If you've got a copy of the Word of God, let me show you where that comes from. Psalm chapter 130. Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8. It looms in the background of why the angel said, call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8. Listen to the word of the Lord. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Now check this out. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now folks, When the Son of God came down to this earth and was born in Mary's womb, He was Yahweh God personally. He's not just a representative of Yahweh. He's not just bringing Yahweh's salvation. Folks, get this straight. That baby in the womb was God. Without that, there is no salvation. And here is a complete exegetical proof directly from Psalm 130 that that baby, that's why the writer is quoting that, that that baby is, in fact, Yahweh God. Not a representative, not another prophet like uh, Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses would teach. No, he is God. That's the clear teaching of the Word. So, involved in this saving ministry is the fact that God condescended from heaven. Born through the portal of a virgin's womb to enter our space-time continuum so that he himself, himself could deliver our salvation and pay the penalty for our sin and save us. This is his name. The baby in Mary's womb is Yahweh himself. The God of all eternity who made everything that there is. There was little or no expectation that the heir of David would come and give his life a ransom for many. They wanted him to be a ruler and overthrow Rome, 
but not a suffering servant. That's why Mark says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So first, in in Matthew's birth narrative, here's what you're going to do. You're going to marvel at the supernatural miracle of his birth. And then you need to think about, you need in your life, as you approach this particular passage, we need to listen to the word as it communicates the gospel. Folks, there is no other gospel. He shall save his people from their sins. There is no other way to heaven. It is absolutely exclusive. No other religion, I don't care what it is that tells you any other way to get to heaven, they're wrong. They're wrong. They're not parallel roads. They're not individual roads. They're not pluralistic roads. It's not true that all roads lead to heaven, folks. That's a lie from the enemy. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, there's no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Don't you love the song, 10,000 years? We'll just begin to sing of love's old story. It's a song that the angels cannot sing. I'm redeemed by the blood of my Savior. And 10,000 years won't even begin to echo our thanks to God for this saving ministry of the King. Somebody say amen. Amen. Right? Just think about that for a moment. That's what we're dealing with here, folks. It's the good old gospel message of Jesus. The fact that he can save sinners. Aren't you thankful? Now finally, we need to rest in the promise and fulfillment of the sovereign mystery of his birth. And the pickup is in verse 22. Listen. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by his prophet. You see that? We've got God having an awesome track record. Did did y'all know that? That God has a perfect track record? I mean, folks, all of this happened because God gave us a promise that it was going to happen. He told you in the scriptures, he proved it by a Savior. And folks, he's going to always have a perfect track record, right? And so we're looking at that fulfillment, clear connection with the Old Testament scriptures. God keeps his promises That's what I want you to do today. I want you to rest in the promise and fulfillment of the sovereign mystery of his birth. God said he was going to do it, and God did it. That's what the Bible says. Now, the connection, uh, you're going to start seeing a fulfillment formula in Matthew. This was done because of this. It's fulfillment. There's 11 of them in Matthew's gospel. There are six of them in the first two chapters. Why is that important, folks? Because God told you in a promise he'd do it, and God fulfilled it. I'm telling you, folks, he's going to fulfill every promise he's ever made. You can take it to the bank. He's going to do it. He did it then. Well, the connection is to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Verse 23 is taken from Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. In Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 7, 14, that word... Alma, in Hebrew, means a woman of maritable age. The RSV took the liberty back in 1947 to translate it, a young maiden. However, if you read your text, if you look over to Isaiah 7.14, today it's going to say, a virgin shall conceive. Well, the literal word is a woman of marriageable age. So you say, well, what's the deal there? Well, God made a promise to Ahaz that he was with his people. And to prove that promise, there was a woman who bore a son. 
and that son was a promise of fulfillment. However, that's just part of the prophecy. There's a dual predictive prophecy. The real son was going to be the son of God. Given to us. And that's why Matthew gives this particular understanding. I wish I had time to expand that more. But you know what Isaiah is going to say in chapter 9 verses 5 and 6. Right? He's the son. He's the child that was born. But he was the son that was given. He didn't have his origin in Bethlehem. He's the son that always existed. The son was given but the child was born. And you shall call his name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. You should call his name Emmanuel. So folks, just as God promised Ahaz that he was with the people, God with us, God fulfilled that prophecy ultimately with God really with us, 100% with us in flesh and blood in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful for that? Think about this for a moment. We learn that God keeps His promises. He gave His Word in the Scripture, and He kept it by His Savior. So listen, we've got a Savior who is fully human. She shall bring forth a child, a son. You shall call His name Jesus. So the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. She brought forth her firstborn son, chapter, verse 23, verse 25. And then we also have a fully divine Savior. How do we know that? Because the description or title given to Him is... Emmanuel, say it. Emmanuel. Now, do y'all understand the sermon? God with, God with us. That's exactly what's going on in this text of Scripture. Because He is God with us in the cradle, He could be God for you on the cross. Are y'all listening? Everybody look at me. Because He was God for us in the cradle, He can be God for you on the cross. Without the cradle... There's no cross. Without him being fully God, fully man, there's no substitute for your sin. And you may ask me this morning, is the virgin birth really a big deal? Well, let me tell you why it is. Because of the trustworthiness of the Bible. The Bible says he was born of a virgin. I believe the Bible. You're denying the trustworthiness of the Scripture to deny the virgin birth. How about the legitimacy and or illegitimacy of the Savior's birth? If you say he wasn't born of a virgin because it's biologically impossible, that's the whole point. It is supernatural. As a matter of fact, if you're scared of the supernatural, then you can't be saved because your salvation is all supernatural. Amen. Jesus clears this up in John chapter 3 when he talks about Nicodemus coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. So, number three, the wedding of deity and humanity. You don't, have a, you don't have a wedding of deity and humanity if it didn't happen the way the Bible said. Now, could Jesus had come to this earth in another form or the Son of God came down? Well, folks, God's not limited at all to anything. He can do whatever He wants to. But this is the way the Bible gives it to us. And this is the reason God chose to do it. Some people say, well, if He'd have been born out of uh, Joseph, He would have been born out of Adam. Folks, where was Mary born? Go ahead and say it. Out of Adam. So that's a Catholic argument that uh, she would have been, he'd have been contaminated if born out of, yes, born out of, Ad, born, born out of Joseph. But they believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. They believe Mary is divine. Baloney. Okay? 
She was out of the same stock that Joseph was out of. A sinner needing a Savior. Right? I'll come back to that in just a moment. So here, uh, the, the fourth thing, the salvation of sinners. In order for us to be saved, both God and man. So here, that's just a few things. That was all free, right? So what Matthew is giving to us in his birth narrative is what John gives us in John 1.1, right? The one, the text that Chad and Mallory read. In the beginning was the, and the word was, and the word, verse 14, and the word was made flesh. That's just exactly what Matthew gave you in his terminology versus how John gave it to us. Do you think Joseph's got some anxiety at this point? So I told you, we need to marvel at the supernatural miracle. We need to listen as the Scriptures communicate it. We need to rest in the promise of fulfillment. But here's the result. God honors obedience. You know, what does Joseph do? You know he's breathless. You know he's stunned. We don't get a lot of commentary. I think God wants us to enter into our thoughts what Joseph may have been thinking about and thinking through. Most people believe that Joseph died in an early age probably before Jesus ever reached manhood, other than Joseph's presence in, at a, as a two-year-old before the wise men, and as a 12-year-old when he's arguing with the Sanhedrin, there's nothing mentioned about Joseph. Just imagine what his life was like in Jewish culture. The loss of reputation, the stigma, the whispers. Maybe Joseph thought at times, well, I'm just going to tell him where he came from. Bring on the white coats, right? Yeah. What are you saying? Just think about the situation that he is in. The conception is of the Holy Spirit, and my son is the Messiah of God. How do you think that would have gone over? Yet, in verse 20, he thought about these things. Now in verse 24, he leaps into action. Should that not be our response? We should obey our God immediately. Amen? We should obey our God immediately. He woke from his sleep. He took Mary to be his wife, just like the angel said. He did it without hesitation. There's no delay. There's no debate. There's no discussion. Only action. Boy, if our church at First Baptist could obey like that. We're not going to tell God, mm, you're not right, or you sure about this thing? Uh, there's no hesitation. It's, it's simple, right? God says do it, and you, you obey. As a matter of fact, the word command is a military order. That's the strength in the Greek language. The angel said, do it. And Joseph said, amen. Action. I'm going to do exactly what the Lord said to do. He took Mary to be his wife. He obeyed the order. God told him what to do. When God speaks, we obey. Whether we understand everything or not, we obey completely. It's stunning and a sudden obedience. And then he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus. You do realize that after this, they took up a normal married life together with sexual relations in the whole nine yards. It's pretty impossible for Jesus to have brothers if that's not the case. Right? Matthew 12 and Mark 6 mention Jesus' siblings, all of which would have come along after him. This means that the, the belief of the perpetual virginity of Mary is nothing but a myth. Period. She became a mother in the natural way. And the child 
The children born after Jesus were all born naturally. And actually, Joseph does more than the angel commands. He stays away in sexual relations until Jesus is born. That's not what he was told, but that's what he did. What an awesome example. He honored Mary and the child until Jesus' birth. He went beyond the command of the angel. Notice how this is all capped off. He named the son as he is told. He named him, say it. Hey, don't be afraid to say it, right? He named him Jesus. The name Emmanuel, God with us, tells us who he is. The name Jesus, God saves, tells us what he does. Right? Emmanuel, God with us. That's who he is. And what does he do? He saves us from our sins. It's the most significant event that's ever taken place in all of human history. God became flesh. He did it in order to save his people. Now, considering, considering the obedience of Joseph. I mean, let me say it this way. Jesus could have been born in Bethlehem a thousand times over. But if he's not born in you, you have no part in him. Yeah, the song catches that well, doesn't it? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. You know those words? Cast out our fears and be born in us. Well, if you're going to obey God, the God of the universe, then you've got to start right there. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're lost. Let me tell you, folks, God has spoken to you today directly from his word. And understand, Jesus would later say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man will ever see the Father except through me. That's an exclusive command. He's got a right to do it, right? Because he's God of eternity who came down to bear your sin debt. And what God is calling you to do today is obey him. Stunningly, suddenly, without hesitation, without discussion. God, this is what you said in your word regarding your son. And this is what I'm going to do today. I'm going to obey in faith. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to believe that Jesus Christ came down from glory that he took my sin to the cross of Calvary, that he nailed it there, and then in turn, when I repent and turn to him, he gives me his righteousness. There is no way to heaven except unless you have the righteousness of God given to you. And Jesus came and died so that you could have his righteousness. Amen? Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. I thank you for your word. God with us, we thank you. And Lord, for the person in this room that knows all the facts, but you've never been born in that person. God, would you do your work of salvation that only you can do today. And Father, as Christians, help us to believe your word. Father, help us to, to, to read it and to not sit around wondering if we're going to believe it and obey, but we're going to take it as your word and we're going to obey you. Perhaps there's some areas of life that you are calling your people to today and you just want simple obedience and they're wrestling with being obedient. God, Lord God, the risk of obedience is worth it. We know that. God help them obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.